walking through the village of Cordova, Peru, we heard the sound of a church service down the street. And so we wanted to go figure out what in the world was going on. We were there with our missionaries, just kind of figuring out what was going on in this village where we were trying to plant a church. And and we heard music, and it sounded like a church service. But the closer we got to this service, we heard sounds of wailing, screaming almost. And as we peered through the doorway of this building, I noticed a small girl, she couldn't have been any older than nine or ten years of age, and she was standing closest to the door. She had her hands in the air, just like many of you did today as you were singing, and tears were literally gushing from her eyes down her face. And over and over, she was yelling the same thing, screaming out the same words, And this seemed to be a sincere act of worship from a small girl, and I was even getting emotional watching it, thinking, what in the world is going on? This is precious in some sense. And I looked at one of the missionaries who were with me and said, she's asking for the gift of tongues. She is desperately screaming out to God that she would speak in tongues. And it went from a precious, sweet moment to a horrifying moment. Heartbreaking moment. And then I began to look around the the building, and she wasn't the only one who was saying and doing this very thing. You see, the reality is this wasn't a church. This was a cult. And it was a cult that had taken various aspects of Christianity... The things that Christians do and don't do. The way Christians should dress. The length of their clothes. The things that they drink and don't drink. They had taken those things and made them requirements for salvation. Requirements for Christianity. And alongside all of that, they had taken certain gifts of the Spirit that we even read about in the Bible. And they required those things for Christianity. And so if you did not exhibit the gift of tongues, you weren't a Christian. And so here we have a nine-year-old, precious, sweet Peruvian girl weeping, begging God that she would speak in this language so she could know that she had been good enough to go to heaven. And that is exactly the same kind of spiritual abuse that is happening in the church of Colossae. We've talked a lot about the Colossae heresy, what false teachers are teaching this new group of believers in in Colossae. They grab all kinds of external aspects of religion And they began to require them for salvation. To be justified, you have to do these things. And they call them to 
an experience. Remember we talked about the Gnostics. There is this realm of knowledge and experience that is out there and it's full of angels and spiritual beings and the Spirit of Christ is out there somewhere. And if you really pursue the spiritual realm through ritual, through external obedience, you can find the Spirit of Christ among these other angels that you are to worship. And they began to demand with all of these things, even Old Testament traditions that we'll talk about in the passage today, pagan rituals, works of the law. They began to demand mystical experiences that you might have visions, that you might engage in the worship of angels and worship with angels. They demanded rigorous self-discipline, refraining from food, even living in a state of sacrifice, poverty without certain things, so that you might be more spiritual, so that you might be more in tune with this spiritual realm. And they demanded these things for salvation. You are not a Christian or you do not know God, whoever that is, if you don't do these things and experience these things. And as with so many of Paul's writings, he addresses this kind of heresy vehemently. And one of the main themes that Paul teaches over and over is that when you add anything to Jesus, anything at all, a work of the law, an experience, not only do you not get the Jesus of the Bible, you get nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus and only Jesus is sufficient to save you from your sins. His cross and His righteousness. That's all you need to be saved from your sins. So when you say, I have to do this other thing to make God happy, you make His cross and His life insufficient. It wasn't enough. I need more. And yet, Jesus, who is enough, plus nothing equals everything. When you come to Jesus and you say, He did it all. He is God's supreme King, but He is also sufficient to save me from my sins through His death on the cross and His perfect life. You get everything in Him. And Paul wants to protect that gospel at all costs. And so he says, you can't talk about these generic, abstract, spiritual experiences, no matter how profound they are, and act as though you're achieving some higher level of spirituality that earns acceptance with God, and all the while minimizing Jesus by adding to Him. And we see that as we get into our text today, beginning in verse 16, we see that the Savior is superior to His shadows. Notice verse 16. In light of all of this, He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Here He says, let no one pass judgment. You could translate this word dominate or control. Let no one control you when it comes to food and drink, what you eat and drink. And here he's referring to Old Testament dietary laws. People of Israel were to refrain from what was unclean food and only eat what was clean. 
And here the false teachers say, that's a good thing to add to this religion. Let's add those things. And you probably had Judaizers there adding things that we talked about last week. Circumcision, to earn acceptance with God, to be justified before God. And then he speaks of these festivals, new moon or Sabbath. These things that are in the calendar, Jewish life, that remind them of God's provision. How God has taken care of them. These days of the weeks, these weeks where you celebrate God's care. Old Testament tradition and festivals. And why should you not allow anyone to dominate or control you with these things, requiring these things necessary for salvation, adding them to Jesus? Notice verse 17. These are a shadow of things to come. These were mere shadows. But notice the substance belongs to Jesus. All of these things in the Old Testament, the way you ate, the things on your calendar, even the Sabbath, that, those were just shadows pointing to the substance who he says is Christ. He says here, Jesus is the real thing. And all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is casting his shadow everywhere. Through every story, every leader, every prophet, every priest, every king, every promise, every symbol, every law, every festival, everything in the Old Testament is a shadow telling us Jesus is there. He is present. But these things are a shadow. And then we see the one casting the shadow when God takes on flesh And the fullness of God comes in in a body with with eyebrows and a mouth and a nose and hands and finger finger nails. (laughs) And walks around and is looking at his creation in their eyeballs and speaking to them. That is the substance that we have been looking for. That is the one who has been casting his shadow all throughout the Bible. And he says these dietary laws, what you ate that was to be clean, refraining from what is unclean, those were just shadows of a Savior who would make His people clean inside and out. The festivals, the days of the week, they were just shadows of the Savior who would deliver us from sin and death. And we would celebrate, not just on a day, not just a time of the year, but we will celebrate forever His deliverance. And the Sabbath, this one out of seven rest, this day of the week where we stop working and we trust God to provide, that was just a shadow of the one who would come, who we would rest in. In looking to Jesus, you can stop your work and you can trust and rest in Him. These things were just shadows. And so what he's saying is let no teacher replace the Savior with a shadow. The shadow cannot replace the Savior, who is the substance, who is the real thing. And that's a problem in our own life, right? When the activities we engage in to know and experience Jesus become the substance of our spirituality and not Jesus Himself, we have replaced the Savior with a shadow And we are merely living in Jesus' shadow. It would be like taking pictures of your wife 
and walking around and talking to them. Honey, I love you so much. So, so thankful for you. Speaking to your wife's pictures as she is in your presence. Paul says, that's just wrong. You have Jesus. All these other things are a shadow that are no longer required. You have Jesus. Don't replace Jesus with a shadow. What leads us to Jesus is not Jesus. And so your prayer life is not your Savior. The list, the routine, the time of the day. When you do, or some of us struggle when we don't, we know we should. That's not our Savior. It's a necessary shadow. And it's a shadow that we walk in to know Jesus is there. But it's not our Savior. You see, prayer is designed to remind you of the gospel. That you have been adopted by God in Christ. And through the power of the Spirit, you are to cry out to God as your Father. That is the substance. He is the person that you are speaking to in your prayer life. But so many times we make the shadows the Savior. And it is the time that we get up. And it is what we are doing. And it is what we are saying in those moments that we think is earning acceptance with God. That's making us a better Christian. No, we are engaging God as our Father. And the Spirit is crying out through Christ. And all Christ has done. And so we speak to Him knowing God is our Father. For some of us, Bible reading has become your Savior. You know a lot of facts about God. You love theology. And you are in love with the shadows. And you are missing the Savior. And we read our Bibles... To come in contact with the Son. It is His story as we talked about. And we want to figure out how I find myself in His story. So what? I can know Him. And I can trust Him. And I can obey Him. And I can be like Him. We, we see Jesus' shadow all through the Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation. But we engage in the Scripture to know and follow Jesus and be like Him. For some of us, worship is your Savior. You don't feel like you are really close to God if you are not engaged in this emotional experience in worship. And it's all about the sound, and it's all about the lyrics, and it's all about the moment. Worship is a necessary shadow that reminds us Jesus is there. By the way, worship as as the church is more than just a shadow. We look around the room and we see the body of Christ. Jesus is here. And we gather To worship and celebrate the Savior who has risen from the dead. And He is at the right hand of God. And we are really singing to Him. Jesus really is ruling and reigning. And we lift up our voices to declare it. It's real. It's It's not just about the lyrics. Lyrics have to be theologically sound and right according to the Scripture. But that's not what we're worshiping. We are worshiping Christ. And so our hearts and our minds... They have to be lifted from the shadows to the Savior as we cry out to Him in prayer, as we read His Word, and as we celebrate Him in worship with the people of God. Don't make shadows the Savior. Then he continues, verse 18, the Savior is superior to experience. 
Notice, he says, don't let them require these traditions, but then also don't make, let them require experience. Notice, let no one disqualify you. This word disqualify means to defraud. It's like an umpire or an official tossing you out of the game for breaking the rules. And what are the rules? Experience. He describes the experience here. Insisting or requiring on asceticism. Now that's this self-abasement, this sacrifice. Think about monks who spend time in solitude, fasting, self-denial, even living in poverty. Don't let anyone require that of you for salvation, to be a Christian. It's the kind of lifestyle that they believe led to this and the worship of angels. That's how you connect it to this spiritual world. In this humility, this humble lifestyle, doing without certain things. You connect it to this spiritual world and you are a part of the worship of angels. And we've talked about that throughout. They, they developed this ladder of spirituality where there were angels, kind of like patron angels. You worship this angel and you move up the ladder. You worship this angel, you move up the ladder. Now the Christ angel is really up high. And so when you believe in Him and you, you worship Him, you move really high up that ladder. But you do so through a life of discipline, asceticism. And then what that results in is this, going on about the details of visions. In all of this spiritual activity, you were also to have visions, dreams, experiences that validated your spirituality. And Paul says this is, these people are puffed up without reason in their sensuous mind. And all of that goes together to say, all of this derives, this made-up religion derives from their pride and self-centeredness. They, they want to have a spiritual experience that no one else has. They want to say that they know things that no one else knows. And how can you trust that they know these things? They've had visions. They've worshipped with the angels. They've experienced things, and so you have to trust them no matter what. And he says this is all coming from their fleshly mind. This is all about them. Now, remember Paul had a vision? Lots of visions. But one in particular, he said he had been to the third heaven, whatever that is. You say, Paul, what's the third heaven? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Why not? Aren't you going to write a book about it? A best-selling book? You've been to heaven? He would say, it doesn't matter. It's about Jesus. I don't want you worshiping me or my vision. It's about Jesus. And so he says, don't let anyone else require these things of you. And it is a warning today. A warning of leaders who make their standard of spirituality or their experience of spirituality the standard. And often, often this is done in spiritual abuse and manipulation. Where leaders will require extra biblical discipline with the promise of power. That if you, you do these things that I do, and, and you sacrifice to be a part of my ministry, or even my profession, the things I can provide for you, you'll be blessed. 
You'll be healed. You'll have a lot of money and you'll win at life for $125 a month. Send it on in. They require blessing. Why? Because they have a spirituality that nobody else has. They are the standards. So beware even of people who boast about dreams and visions that only they have. They're the only ones who can validate those things. Beware of leaders who speak of knowledge or specific words from God that you cannot confirm. That, that are not from the pages of Scripture. Beware. But most of all, beware of these things in your own heart. Beware of the danger of making experience the validation of your faith. Beware of that. It is a dangerous road to go down. We experience God by the Spirit through the Gospel following the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we know who He is? The very words of God. And there's enough to experience there. The power of the Spirit is real and moving in our lives. But where does it begin and end? The Gospel. The Spirit unites us to Christ. His death, His life, and His resurrection. And being united to Him, we experience something otherworldly in Christ. We have our sins forgiven. We're accepted by God. We're going to be raised from the dead. That's an amazing experience to know that is settled in our heart. We experience God by the power of the Spirit through the gospel following the person of Jesus Christ. It is a real experience to know that the Spirit lives with inside of you so that you may know who Jesus is. This one who is a former corpse ruling and reigning, and you may live with Him, walk with Him, and know Him, and become more like Him. That is the experience we have daily as Christians. And this is the guardrails of Christian experience. The Spirit, through the Gospel, following the person of Jesus Christ, that we know in Scripture. I want to know more about Jesus. I get in His Word, His story. You may say, well, don't we experience God in creation? Absolutely. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation is His handiwork. How do you know that? The Bible? And what does the Bible tell us? Jesus created all of those things. So when we walk out on the pinnacles and we go, oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is so glorious. What are we doing? We are to say, and Jesus made it all. It is the experience of Jesus that derives by the power of the Spirit through the gospel, following Him, knowing Him in His Word. And let me just warn you, rogue experience is subjective. And you have to be the one to validate that. And I know my heart is wicked. It is subjective. Rogue experience is prone to deception. There is a spiritual realm. Paul's warning. He says, no, no. There are devils and there are demons. There is a spiritual realm. And if you're living by experience, you will be prone to be deceived by Satan who clothes himself as an angel of light. 
It is not the sum total of your spirituality. Rogue experience from Christ in the Bible leads to insecurity in people's life. And I see it all the time. People whose Christianity is all about the experience, they're always on a roller coaster. And I never see them finish well, by the way. They finish, many I believe are Christians, friends in my own life who went to heaven, but their whole life was this roller coaster based on experience. Why? If I'm not having the vision, the dream, the experience today, I must not be loving Jesus the way that I should. And they are insecure. And they are racked with anxiety. It is an insecure way to know God. And by the way, it's addictive. And you can constantly be looking for the next experience, not the regular means which God has said, you should pursue me through prayer and the word. That's boring. And it's addictive and it's dangerous. And Paul says, don't give in to it. But what are we to do? Verse 19. And holding fast to the head who is Christ. Here he says, these leaders, they're in their own mind, requiring things of their, from their own mind instead of holding to Christ who is the head, who is the mind of the church, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments that gro- grows with a growth that is from God. He says here the way to genuine experience and spirituality is to hold fast to Christ first and foremost. It it, it refers to a tenacious grasp, clinging to Christ no matter what. This is where your experience with God begins, holding fast to Him. And he says here he is the the head, the first. He he ranks above all. He is the, the origin, the foundation of the church. And so whatever experience goes on in the church, it begins with Jesus. And he says the whole body is connected to him. The nerves, the tendons, they all lead back to him so that the body can be cared for. And one of the points being made here when we talk about spirituality and experience is if you are experiencing Jesus, he is head of the church who is his body. And so you're not having these experiences off to yourself alone. Experiences with Christ are in context with His body, the church. And he says the church, this is how the church is nourished, clinging to Christ, supplied. She gets everything she needs from Him. He is her provision, knit together. And as we cling to Christ together, He begins to tie us together. This powerful word, knit, that Eric talked about in his sermon, that takes us all the way back to Psalm 139. The same way God knit us together in our mother's womb, Jesus is knitting the church together as we cling to Him. When we cling to Him and we're all clinging to Him, guess what? We're clinging to one another. And we experience what it means to be this community and this family in the world. He's trying to communicate here, this is the experience you need. This growth from God together. This is what God is doing in the world. He is growing the church, looking to Christ, not through individual private experiences off to the side, away from the church. Now, when you experience Christ, you should be growing closer to the church because it's His body. But notice this emphasis here. 
Notice the contrast. Individual experience versus Jesus' care for the body of the church. And, and we, we just logically, private experience isolates you from other people. It is something only you have off to the side. But when you experience Christ, you're being fused together with His body. This is why Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, rebuked them for the way they used the gift of tongues. He said, you're over here to the side yammering around and there's nobody interpreting? Why would you have an interpreter? Because what you're saying is supposed to be encouraging the church. But you're just over here off to the side. And Paul says, I don't care what kind of language you can speak in. If you don't have love, it's nothing. And so whatever experience you have, it is to bind you together in love with the church. That's how we experience Christ. That's why here we're not going to orchestrate an experience outside the preaching of the gospel. No, we preach Christ and we lift him up as the one who was crucified for our sins, raised up. And Jesus would say, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And we've said through faith, looking to him, confidence when I sin, I know that Jesus has died for my sin. When, when I'm worried about, about my acceptance before God, my, my, does God love me? My confidence is in in Jesus' perfect life, and I am secure there. And so as I see and hear the gospel, I am secure in Christ. And you know what that does? From that security, I'm able to love others as Jesus loved me. And as this process happens in the church, I am being bound together with the church. That is the experience of the gospel that we're looking for. To know and love Jesus and love one another the way He has loved us. The most radical experience you can have in following Christ is being a part of a family like this. And, and you know your history and you know who you are. And you know your sins and your faults and your mistakes. And what you need on a Sunday is not a vision. You need a brother and sister to say, I love you. That is the experience that you need. And to come in here and know we have all kinds of disagreements about what's going on in the world, whether it's wars or politics, and we disagree about all of those things, but we still gather as a family and we say we have a king and we have a kingdom that transcends all of that. I need that experience. That's what I need to experience God, is the body of Christ. And Paul would say this is the manifold wisdom of God. And so the question today is, you want an experience? Are you pursuing nourishment in Christ? Are you being knit together with the body of Christ in love? And then whatever flows from that, we know is from God, from Scripture. But that's first and foremost what we're doing. But here, the Savior is superior to experience, and then finally we see the Savior is superior to deeds of the flesh. He, he summarizes this section in saying, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Now, 
What he's saying here is when you believed in Christ and were nine it to him, you, you gave up on that sort of spirituality and that religion. You said, I can't, I can't earn my salvation through works of the law. And, and you died to that. And you said, I don't need some experience in this spiritual realm and worshiping angels, visions, dreams. And you gave up on that. You died to that. And so what he says is now that you believe in Christ and you've been crucified to those things, now as a Christian who is fully accepted by God in Christ, instead of living in Christ, why are you going back to this world? And to play on words. He's talking about the spiritual world. He said that spiritual world is gone. Jesus rules and reigns. And you've been connected to him anyway. Why are you worried about these basics? These elemental spirits. This world that you left behind. Why do you feel like you have to go back and do those things? Why would anybody convince you that that is the way of spirituality? That that is the way of religion? When you died to those things. Why act like you're still living in that world? He gives examples here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things, uh, they refer to things that perish as they are used, which is food, things of the world. And he says, according to human precepts and teachings, these men are making it up. And one of the things they would do is they would take the Old Testament law, go back to Leviticus, and they would add this to the Gentile spirituality, these rituals that you go through. You couldn't eat things that were unclean. You couldn't be around dead bodies. He was forcing them to act like Jews in the Old Testament. Why are you going back to that world thinking you're going to earn acceptance with God that way? Verse 23, he says, they indeed have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. What he's saying here is that looks godly. It looks really spiritual, especially when you add Jewishness to it. That looks really spiritual. It looks really wise, but all they're doing is promoting themselves. It's all things they require. And by the way, if you give into that, it's just things you're doing. Deeds of the flesh. And here's the problem with deeds of the flesh. He says asceticism, this humility, sacrificing things, food, living in solitude, disciplining your flesh, severity of the body, even punishing your body at times. He says, they are of no value. They look great. They look wise. They look godly. Like you love Jesus. You're serious about Jesus. You're radical about Jesus. But notice, they have no value in stopping the indulgence in the flesh. He says, one of the things that all of these traditions, all of these rituals, all of these deeds of the flesh, all of these extra biblical commands being added, the one thing they can't do is stop you from sinning. You're just adding exterior disciplines over a heart that is deceitful and wicked. And none of these things are changing your heart. They can't change your heart. The point he's making here is the same point that Jesus made when people were arguing about what what his friends ate and drank and the Jews. and, And he looked at them and said, it's not what goes in and out of the body that makes you clean or unclean. It's It's your heart. It's your heart. You need a clean heart. And you can't do that through works of the flesh. You can't do that through discipline. And so you may have an appearance of godliness, but it only covers up a sinful heart. 
And that is the spirituality that so many of us are living with today. We are on this treadmill of deeds of the flesh, trying to to change our heart somehow in the things that we are doing. We all know that, friend. I'm going to get my life right. Life gets difficult. Things are hard. I'm going to do what's right now. They start coming to church. They start dressing different. Maybe even start reading their Bible, going to Bible study. And, and, and we know this is just kind of what they do. They take on this outward religion every now and then because they have guilt about sin in their own life. And they're really trying to change something in their own heart just by doing these things that they think are good. And it never lasts. It's a grueling treadmill that's never enough. And some of you are here today and you want peace from guilt over sin. There are things that you know you are guilty of before God. And you want peace and that's why you're here today. There's some of you here today and you want to be blessed by God and so you're taking on the image of Christianity. You woke up one day and you said, I don't like living this way. What do good people do? I think some people, good people go to that church in a warehouse. Why not do that? I've noticed the way that some of them raise their kids. Why not do that? I notice a lot of them meet at a coffee shop and they talk to one another. Why not do that? I notice they post these books. I know they got these hashtags. Why not, why not try that? Why not try to do those things? And then some of you are here today asking, what do good Christians do? Well, they share the gospel. They, they give. They talk about missions. They go to church and they worship and get up early and read their Bible. I think I'll, I think I'll try all of those things. And you're disillusioned because nothing is changing. You even look at certain things in your life and you say, if I just do better, this will get better. And it's not happening. Why is that? Deeds of the flesh can't change sin in your own heart. And it's not just those who are in a remote village dominated by cultish false teachers who are scared about what's going to happen to them when they die. Some of you are here today are begging God for an experience. Just show me that you're real. You ever prayed that? Show me that you're real, God. I need to know you're real. What do we want when we pray for that? What do you want? What do you want that's more real than the Son of God nailed to a bloody cross Enduring the wrath of God for you. What do you want God to do to show you? Not just that He's real, but that He loves you. Then sending His Son to die for you on the cross. What do you want? What kind of sign do you want? Oh, you want someone back from the dead? You want someone walking out of a first century coffin who was dead for three days? What sign do you want from God? The work that Christ has done is the work you need. The experience you need is to be joined to Jesus by the power of the Spirit. 
The deeds of the flesh have been accomplished. And when you look to Him, guess what? He does something you can't do. He rips out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh so that you can live for Him. He's the one that does it. You can't do it. So come out of the shadows and come to the Savior today.